Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's the cool thing about it. You don't have to be going to different countries or doing epic sort of adventures in that sense. You can just go out and have your own little adventures in your own little patch of wood or even in one single tree, you know, and that's, that's the great thing about it. Welcome to the second episode of Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to Waldo Etherington. Now, Waldo operates a little bit under the radar. He's not a household name. He's not famous. He's just one of these people who gets things done quietly on a daily basis. Waldo will introduce himself uh, when we start the episode properly, but he is a uh, self-professed extreme recreational tree climber. He had a very interesting childhood, um, started climbing trees when he was, well, walking, and hasn't really stopped and is now one of the world's leading authorities on tree climbing. I first met Waldo in an airport in Iceland on our way to climb the Mirror Wall in Greenland as part of an expedition that Leo Holding had put together. Waldo and I got on immediately, and they're funny things, expeditions. It's amazing the way they can bring people who hardly know each other together over the course of six weeks. As I said, Waldo and I hadn't met until this expedition, but two weeks into it, we found ourselves roped together, walking back down a glacier towards base camp. Having just got to the base of the wall, established a route up the glacier to get to the base of this mile-high rock face. When Waldo was pretty ill, and Leo decided the best thing to do was get him down to base camp, we'd had an amazing but fairly difficult morning uh, navigating our way up this glacier. And actually, a photo of Waldo walking up this glacier is the cover photo for the podcast on the website. Now, I won't go into too much detail, but Waldo hadn't been very well on the way back down. He was having to stop every five minutes to uh, throw up and everything else that comes with an upset stomach from drinking dodgy, stagnant water in base camp, which the rest of us had avoided. Just after one of these particular incidents, we start moving again, and I fall down to my waist in this snow bridge. Now, this had been happening all day. Uh, The sun had been heating up the glacier. The snow bridges were pretty loose and pretty soft, and... We were fairly used to this happening, so I put my poles out to the side, started moving myself back up, looked up at Waldo and said, I think it's all right. And in classic kind of movie style, I disappeared through this snow bridge. And the next thing I know, I'm dangling on the end of a seven mil rope with uh, Waldo's body weight holding me and stopping me falling another 20 meters into a, a flowing stream at the bottom of this crevasse. I shout up to Waldo that I'm okay. I'm wearing aluminum crampons and I've got a single ice axe with me. So I kind of cut steps. Uh, slowly to get myself out of this crevasse, crawl onto the top, and uh, I turn to see Waldo, who's filming himself with the camera, and he says, I just pooped myself and puked up, and Matt fell in a crevasse. Uh, Perfect timing, so maybe there's a presenting career uh, awaiting him in the future. And that was the first of what have been many adventures for Waldo and I, and I'm really pleased to be able to introduce you to Waldo in this podcast. Very conveniently for the next section of this intro... Waldo grew up in Bridport in Dorset, which is just 10 minutes down the road from the Firepot Foods HQ. 
Now, I mentioned in episode one that we're incredibly proud and really pleased and grateful to be supported by Firepot with this podcast. Waldo was an early adopter of Firepot food, and not just because their kitchen chef, Tim, used to work at one of his favourite pubs in Dorset. Firepot stand for very similar things to Waldo. They're environmentally conscious, they're top tier, and they're proud of what they do. If you'd like to try out a couple of Firepot meals, there's a discount code in the show notes on the website at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. I've spent many happy hours sat in portal ledges listening to all those stories, and I hope you enjoy them too. Can you begin by telling me a little bit about who you are and what you get up to? Right, okay, so uh, my name is Waldo Etherington, and ostensibly I'm a professional tree climber, but I also do a myriad of different things that involve rope and rigging and uh, very often remote places. Try and orientate as much of what I do as possible around climbing trees and spending time in the canopy. Um, But through no fault of my own, I found myself on plenty of mountains and rock faces and random places recently, um, which have actually proved to be exceptionally good fun. So yeah, that's me really. I spend a lot of time hanging from a rope in different places around the world for various objectives, um, usually secondary objectives, primary objective being having an adventure. Ace, and how did you become a, an extreme recreational tree climber? <laughs> Self-proclaimed. Just through a love of climbing trees, really, like every or most young kids in Dorset growing up, um, you kind of spend a lot of time climbing trees and running around in the woods. And uh, for me, that very early on became not really an obsession but probably like my most frequented pastime was going and climbing trees so um to start right at the beginning when I was sort of five or six years old a neighbor um sort of three gardens down basically gave me free reign of his garden we had quite a small garden with a little apple tree in it that I'd climbed plenty of times but he had these three massive sycamores a big willow tree and a eucalyptus in the bottom and this huge birch tree and uh by that point, I had quite a large collection of ropes and nets because my um, very eccentric uncle, for every birthday or Christmas, the easiest present they, they found to give me was uh, basically a big black plastic sack, like a bin liner, just filled with offcuts of ropes and cargo nets. Because um, the town that I was brought up in is actually an old rope and net making town. Um, so it's very easy to come across skips just filled with old, old ropes and, and, and cargo nets. So uh, yeah, I spent my time lacing the top of these trees with rope walks and zip lines and uh, and cargo nets and um literally spent every waking hour from the age of about five or six to about 15 16 up in these trees swinging around and and, and just playing around in the treetops which was just the best fun ever and then then i went to uh sixth form and kind of wasn't particularly academic but uh spent a bit of time not climbing as many trees, got into sort of free running and, and rollerblading and sort of various other things. Um, and then it wasn't until I volunteered for this, um, it's like an Israeli bat scientist doing research in Honduras, um, collecting bats. And it was, I had this option to go along on this expedition, which was insanely expensive. For me at the time, it was like £2,000. So I spent a year um, packing bags in supermarkets and working two different jobs. And then um, my mother chipped in a, a couple of hundred pounds here and there. And then I got to get on, get, go on this trip to the cloud forest in Honduras, um, which for me, ever since I was really, really young, I just had these aspirations of exploring rainforests and running around in jungles. So it's kind of like a dream come true. And when I went out there, I just found 
kind of my place really I felt like I'd sort of come home just being in that environment something that's so rich and diverse and interesting there's just so much life around you and it, it, it was just pure joy really and whilst I was out there I met these two climbers that were working for a company called Canopy Access Limited um, for which now I'm the chief instructor um, but at the time I had no idea you could climb trees as a job especially in rainforests um, and when I found out these guys were professional tree climbing instructors. That was pretty much me set. It's like, right, I know exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, it went from there, really. I got back to the UK and um, managed to get a grant to do this uh, basic canopy access proficiency. So I did this first tree climbing course. Um, and then from there, it was just a snowball effect, really. I just sort of carried on going. Um, soon after, got qualified as an arborist. Again, kind of just as an excuse to climb trees and to, to find a way to climb trees and kind of earn money at the same time. And doing arboriculture really opened up a lot more about trees and tree climbing than I ever imagined. And more, more kind of the relationship between trees and living spaces and people. I found that really interesting and, and quite pivotal really in the formation of my career and, and how, how I regarded trees. And then, I mean, this is a very long story. It's pretty much, I'm kind of a one-trick pony, basically. I've just been climbing trees since I was about six years old. <laughs> it's kind of the same story all the way through. But yeah, after that, I um, carried on climbing trees. <laughs> and that led into uh, various different qualifications and, and rope disciplines. So I got into, I did industrial rope access, um, just to tick a box for insurance, really. And then, yeah, many, many other qualifications to do with ropes and climbing. And through Canopy Access, I eventually got picked up as a junior junior instructor when I was about 17, 18. And then got the opportunity to go along and work as a tree climbing assistant on loads of different projects. So the first one was in Australia. So I went out to Australia and worked on a IBISCA project, which is investigating biodiversity of soil and canopy arthropods. Which was, again, like a dream come true. That rainforest was absolutely incredible. But the amount of diversity there is mind-boggling. In the UK, we've got between sort of 33 and 37 kind of species of trees that are native to this country. In Australia, there was like five, six times that in a 100-metre quadrat. And just so many unknowns and so much, so many plants and animals and insects that you've never seen before. I mean, and they could very well be new to science. That's the cool thing about being in the treetops. You, you know, you, you climb a tree you're probably the first person out there more people have been on the surface of the moon than the top of that particular tree and that has always been incredibly exciting for me yeah like i said really a snowball effect i did more and more expeditions um i kind of treated those first three or four years like university um so i decided after i found that you could climb trees as a living that um, i wasn't going to do university despite getting i got an unconditional place to do environmental sciences um in sussex university uh which i was all set for and I've always been quite orientated around the environment. So I was really excited about that, but then uh, quickly just diverted my attention to becoming a tree climber. Um, so I spent, I sort of maxed out about four credit cards over those four years and uh, just did every single trip I could possibly do, much to the despair of my mother, who was pulling out her hair at this point, <laughs> but still enthusiastic and supportive, um, which was incredible to have that. Yeah, and then after a while, I remember the first expedition where they said they were going to pay for my flights um, and at the end of it I got a, a haul bag and a hundred metre rope which for me was you know it was the most I'd ever been paid for any tree climbing job so it was a it was great and then from that point on I did lots of lots of paid work and lots of really interesting expeditions working alongside scientists um, and film crews as well in remote places um, and it's 
yeah, it just floats my boat, so I haven't stopped doing it. <laughs> that brings us up to date, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. So what was it like growing up in Dorset? What was childhood like? Um, childhood was, I mean, I guess it was fairly hectic. My mother was a single parent. I remember we were living off 36p a week for a long time. The house we were living in, I think all my mother's friends kind of chipped in and enabled her to buy the house. Um, and then over the years, she sort of paid them off, um, which was an amazing and enabled my mum to, to have her own house. And I was brought up with my mum and my sister. Um, that house, initially, we were all kind of camping in sleeping bags in the attic room. Um, we just had, like, concrete floor. We had little piles of bricks with planks across it as our, you know, tables and chairs. It was, you know, it, it was poverty, I guess, as much as you can be in England. But I think it's a great education being brought up with no money, you know, I remember there's a story my mum said about when she gave me a um a little uh, cardboard like like drink and gave it to me and I was like oh, is that all for me? <laughs> She's like yes, it's all for you. And so I really learned to appreciate things like that. Um, and I mean my mum's advice for bringing up kids is to not bring them up at all. So I guess that kind of sums it up. I had a lot of freedom, a lot of unsupervised playtime, usually in the top of trees. Um, so yeah, it was. It was wonderful, really. A lot of time climbing trees and just questing around and exploring and injuring myself. And yeah, it's everything a kid could ask for, really. And what's your first memory of having an adventure in trees? I guess one of my earliest memories is building a hide um, that wasn't actually in a tree, it was underneath the tree. But I spent ages, I found all these like uh, corrugated fence panels. And I sort of propped them all up and made this little shed and covered it in grass. And I remember hiding in there just waiting for wildlife I think I saw like a blackbird and a magpie um, which wasn't <laughs> not the best start but um but yeah for me just that that sense of you don't know what's going to come by you're going to make yourself hidden you're going to spend some time in one area and for me that was a real adventure you know like sort of just that sense of just questing out and hiding and I mean if you're hiding in a woodland you're either kind of shooting people and you're in your military or you're filming stuff or you're just a massively enthusiastic sort of nature person aren't you really so uh, yeah that was an incredibly cool adventure just sort of building hides and looking for wildlife um, but in terms of in the trees I mean I had a wild imagination as a kid I vividly remember dressing up as Indiana Jones one day and uh, making myself a whip out of <laughs> the insulation for like out of a plug socket basically so just normal wire and wrapped a duct tape sort of handle on it to give myself a bit of grip had my shirt on and my Indiana Jones hat. I remember being halfway up this tree and I had this cargo net strung up at the t between these two trees, probably like 10 metres up. And I was holding onto this branch. I got my whip off my belt, which took some doing. Whipped it and <laughs> much to my surprise, it wrapped around a bit of this cargo net and seemed to hold me. So I was like, oh, great. So without thinking twice, I put two hands on the whip, my feet against the tree and uh, inevitably, yeah, it came off and I fell about six or seven meters onto my back on a tree root and um then spent two hours in tears without being able to breathe at the bottom of this tree <laughs> good good life lesson good life lesson i mean the adventures are sort of too many to count really at that age growing up every day is an adventure and that's the cool thing about it you don't have to be going to different countries or doing epic sort of adventures in that sense you can just go out and have your own little adventures in your own little patch of wood or even in one single tree you know and that's that's the great thing about it were you doing it on your own as a kid yeah i had um a number of friends that would kind of visit and it was like sort of 
play heaven for them. You know, it was like this huge tree park, death slides and zip lines everywhere. And so I had a lot of friends and my cousins used to come and play on the nets. But um, usually, yeah, I was kind of on my own up there, just working stuff out and learning how to tension ropes. And then you'd get in the middle and it'd touch the ground. So you'd have to find out how to get more mechanical advantage, I guess. Not that I knew what that was at that age. So yeah, a lot of time on my own. And when you started going overseas, do you remember you know, what your ambitions were for kind of personal missions? I think one of my earliest memories of having my ambition, which has kind of stayed with me all these years, is um, I was given a sleeping bag uh, by my cousin Jane, whose father was my grandmother's brother, so my great uncle. And he was called John Horlick Mercer. Um, and he was a glacial geomorphologist. Um, so he was actually known as the grandfather of the greenhouse effect. Um, he did some of the earliest research and found out glaciers were melting um, and put forward this, this theory, global warming essentially, the greenhouse effect. And so yeah, really early on he was aware of this and he used to quest out with his team of huskies and, uh, and do these incredible adventures. And I'd see these little pictures or you know slideshows on those old school projectors that my uncles would show me of all his expeditions. And for me, that was just the biggest inspiration as a kid, the fact that that was out there, that you could go and do insane expeditions like that in remote places. For some reason, the ice never really appealed to me. I just had this kind of love of trees and monkeys and jungles from as early as I can remember. But given that sleeping bag at that age sort of set me up, I was like, right, I'm, I'm halfway there. I've got, I've got everything I need. I've got a sleeping bag. <laughs> All I need now is, a, well, I had a knife. I had a pen knife. So in my own little world, that was me set really. And I remember thinking, oh, this sleeping bag is going to be with me through all these adventures. And um, yeah, so from as early as I can remember, I've wanted to explore jungles and rainforests and aid science, you know, really romanticised kind of make-believe ambition. But uh, it's kind of held true. And um, somehow I've kind of steered in that direction. And now I guess it's kind of what I predominantly do is explore rainforests and, and help science. And uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it doesn't seem so make-believe, actually. Yeah. It seems very real life. Yeah. So when you were in your kind of late teens, early 20s, what were you getting up to? I mean, you've mentioned it briefly, but <laughs> where were you going and what were you doing? I mean, is this all going to be put on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> I was quite hyperactive as a, as a teenager. I went to like sort of six different schools over the years. Um, couldn't really sit still. In, in classrooms, uh, but always had a love of biology and, and science um, and ended up doing quite well in my GCSEs somehow. Um, but yeah, that age, I guess, I was <laughs> being a bit of a delinquent for a number of those years. We used to do uh, what's called missions, which involved you just running through people's gardens. I mean, basically, if we didn't get chased by the police, it was kind of a wasted evening. So I had my, my group of delinquent friends. <laughs> They're all still very good friends of mine to this day. Um, and yeah, we just used to run around until someone called the police on us and then there'd be a big epic and a chase by the police and we'd usually get away. Um, but by that point, most of the policemen knew who I was and, uh, multiple times I used to get delivered back to my mother's house at like three in the morning and have to go and wake her up. <laughs> Mum, the police are downstairs. <laughs> She'd get up in a nightie and come down. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, uh, so yeah, a lot of getting into trouble and, um, but I, I still loved being outdoors and running around in the woods. We used to have a lot of parties in the woods and down on the beach. And uh, and uh, yeah, so I don't know, what was I up to at that age? Pretty much being a delinquent and not climbing as many trees as as I was sort of at the age of 16 and before. 
Um, so yeah, I'd say I had like a year or two gap, which I didn't necessarily go off the rails, but I, it definitely wasn't the most productive in terms of um, career. What what sorted you out? What sorted me out? Um, I think just finding direction, really. Realising that, just seeing the light in tree climbing, you know, realising like, wow, this is something that if I devote myself to, could become a career. And it, it was just totally in accordance with all my romanticised ambitions of exploring rainforests and jungles. And it just really clicked into place for me. I was like, wow, like... I want to explore. I want to be an explorer. And you'll hear time and time again, people saying exploration is kind of dead now. You know, everything's being explored. Space, maybe, you know, there's still a lot to explore there and, and deep oceans. But other than that, on terrestrial land, everything's kind of been done. And that does reign true in a lot of senses. Like a, a, most of the maps have been filled in and, and yada, yada. But when you get up into the top of trees, like I said before, it is true exploration. You just don't know what you're going to find up there. And time and time again, I'm just blown away by what you do find up there and these different worlds that are hidden. So I think just just passion, really. Pure like drive to do something you really love and to get pure enjoyment from that activity was just uh, just gave me a lot of direction and a lot of focus. And I think even from a really early age, I've had this kind of weird ability just to sort of hone in and just focus on something it's the absolute be all and end all like nothing else matters I'll just hone in on one particular thing and just concentrate on it and I think I just sort of naturally applied that to climbing trees and, and I think that really um really sorted me out and I think over the years as well through my teens and my early 20s just having these kind of regular expeditions to remote places where you have to be on form you're not going to be drinking alcohol or going to parties or you know anything like that it's you've kind of it was just this kind of regular incentive to stay fit and healthy and to stay focused and to be on your game and to be you know enthusiastic like positive helpful like physically active capable person and that kind of drive really has been a really massive influence for me over my life and what are the what are some of the highlights with this like the standout trips standout trips i think uh the one that springs to mind straight away was the first time i went to borneo um a good friend of my mother's actually, uh, Dr. Clive Marsh, um, who unfortunately died from Japanese encephalitis um, that he caught actually whilst he was out in, in Borneo, which is like a degenerative, degenerative brain disease. Really nasty. Um, but he was out in Borneo and he had uh, established this research station called Danham Valley um, in this area that had never been logged, never been hunted. Um, and I'd heard from his wife and, and my mum and, and many other people about this place. Um, and in my mind, it was... You know, I had just images of going across a rope bridge and having monkeys swinging around everywhere and elephants and orangutans in the trees and just how you imagine a rainforest as a kid, you know. And uh, and then I got this opportunity to go there and work alongside a, a man called James Aldred, who directs Canopy Access Limited. He's been probably the most influential figure in my life to date. And I remember the first time, like, going along the track, getting deeper and deeper into the jungle, and it was just as I imagined, <laughs> like, pulling up into Danham Valley seeing the size of these trees and i mean it's the tallest rainforest on earth the tallest tropical rainforest on earth and i mean the trees aren't as big as the redwoods for example like the coastal redwoods in, in california but they're broadleafs so these are flowering plants they they've got a main stem that go up and then they've got these huge spreading limbs and branches they're just like the biggest the most monumental structures you could possibly imagine and to just be dumped in in the middle of that forest was just the most awesome experience I saw orangutans and elephants and giant monitor lizards and huge snakes and it was 
really, really wild. And uh, yeah, it just ticked all the boxes for me. It was amazing. I, I assume it doesn't always go well. No, no, not at all. But um, I guess that's the kind of good thing about adventure. You kind of set yourself up for an adventure, don't you? And then sometimes it's way more of an adventure than you planned. And I guess that's part of the excitement and part of why you do it. Yeah, I've had many expeditions that haven't gone to plan. But funnily enough, they're also kind of the most memorable and the ones I look back at with kind of the fondest memories. Any in particular that <laughs> stand out? <laughs> well, yeah, again, the one that stands out the most was, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of led, in inverted commas, a few expeditions with my mates where uh, I was like, right, we're going on an expedition. We'd get our bags of rope and we'd book some flights. We went to Morocco to climb the Cedars and the Atlas Mountains. Um, and I'd done multiple little trips to UK woodlands. And, uh, and then I decided it was time to do sort of a, a major expedition. I think I was 17 at the time. And um, I got two of my very close friends together, Ian Geddes. Um, he's another tree climber from Dorset, a farmer who I've known since I was about five years old. And Zach Bentley, who I've also known since I was about five, who was a budding filmmaker. And yeah, we uh, decided to go and track down these trees that I'd been told about by a friend of mine called Ben Jones. Um, he's the curator of Harcourt Arboretum, a really knowledgeable, just awesome guy. And uh, he told me that he was out on a seed collecting project in Chile. Um, and they were collecting seeds from the alursa trees, uh, which straight away they captured my imagination. They're known as the Redwoods of the South um, or the Patagonian Larch. They've got a few different names. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a backhanded compliment calling them the Redwoods of the South because in many ways they're way more magnificent. They do look like Redwoods, but they're, they're sort of a similar age, I think older. Um, the second oldest fully verified tree in the world at the time was an alursa tree. Um, so they'd taken a core sample, I believe, and counted the rings, physically counted the rings. And it was 3,622 years old at the time which is like it's older than the bible says the world is you know it's just like a <laughs> monumental tree and they're not like so the oldest trees in the world are the bristlecone pines um a tree called methuselah and they're you know seven thousand or more years old but they're kind of you know they're a few feet tall and they're trees and they're really old but they're not massive and these ones are like 60 meters 50 60 meter trees huge huge bowls and they just they're monumental and they're so so old and everything about them just really captured my imagination and the fact that they're quite hard to find a lot of them have been chopped down hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host they're just steeped in all this history straight away i was like that's those are the trees i want to go and track down those are the trees i want to go and climb like you know tried to find research on their height or people that had done research in the canopy there and i found one clip of someone shimmying up one with spikes and a flip line but barely any information on their morphology or, or what's found in the canopy. Um, I thought, great, like let's let's go find these trees. We've got a perfect excuse there. Let's try and get some height measurements and a bit of information on the trees, and um, and maybe just try and uncover like the plight of those trees, which is kind of the same story worldwide. You know, like huge deforestation, they're just being wiped out. Um, and that trip taught me 
a hell of a lot, um, predominantly about how important old trees are. Um, going off track, don't get me started I'm blabbering about old trees. Um, but yeah, that trip. So um, we set off to find these trees. Uh, we hired a car in Valdivia, a two-wheel drive Hyundai Accent, and uh, decided to drive from that point to the second oldest fully verified tree in the world, and that was going to be our starting point for the expedition. So we get to that tree, and we, we wanted to climb it and get up into the top of it and, and, and do a piece that we could put in the film about it, which was all a really good plan. Um, so we got this car, all jumped in it, and then Ian came back from this tourist information centre with this little map that was had barely any detail on it, but a red line that kind of ran through the Valdivian Coast Reserve. Looking back on it, I actually wonder whether that was a borderline, not a road. But anyway, collectively, we somehow made the decision to, to take this uh, this different road that went through the centre of the Valdivian Coastal Reserve, uh, which is an incredible place. Um, we thought, great, like, rather than just taking the motorway down on this route that we've planned for the last six months, let's just change our plans last minute and, and take this other road. So yeah, anyway, a five and a half hour journey turned into basically five and a half days. Um, we totally ran out of food and water. The car just got totally destroyed within the first day we kind of got on this track that was really bumpy quite hard going a number of times we had to take all our kit out the back to take the weight out and push it up hills and over lumps and we got to this kind of suitable camping spot and I took a sort of an hour stroll up the road and came back and I was like well yeah it's kind of the same there's puddles and potholes but it's passable so we decided to carry on so the next day after a couple of hours driving we crossed a bridge that was super shaky and it had this ledge and the whole Thing kind of subsided a bit as we went off it. It was like, that's dodgy. We didn't really fancy going back along that. And then we passed this really muddy area and then this really, yeah, we kind of went up this hill through it. We didn't think we were going to get past this muddy area, but we did. And then we went down the other side of this hill, which was impossible by any means to get that car back up. So that by that point on the second day, we are like, right, we're 100% committed now. And uh, I remember it was the end of the third day, which was equally like, just hardcore we have kind of had this meeting <laughs> it was like right guys like nobody knows where we are we don't know where we are on a map the gps had just stopped working like the day before we've got no way of contacting anybody <laughs> we've basically run out of food and water like we don't know if this road is going to lead anywhere like what what are we going to do and we kind of came to the collective decision that we've got no choice <laughs> we have to carry on and that was just it was the biggest adventure of the whole trip we ended up like you know, we had pulley systems, we'd split a big lock and log into to make a spade so we could dig out sections of the bank and we'd two of us had run ahead just filling in potholes and big trenches with rocks and soil and knocking down like bits of the bank so we could drive the car across it. And then eventually we got to this river that had houses on the other side of it. And um yeah, we couldn't pass the river, it was way too big, so me and my in swam across the river, knocked on the door and uh of this guy's house, Pedro, who opened the door and like <laughs> quite surprised to see two westerners standing there i don't think many people go to that village and uh we tried to explain that our car was on the other side of the riverbank and he kept repeating the word boat back to us <laughs> and we were like no it's a car we've got... so we were like come we'll show you and we took him to the riverbank and then he had this like hyundai accent parked on the other bank and his jaw just hit the ground <laughs> which point he burst out laughing went and got all his mates from the village <laughs> they all had a field day couldn't believe we had come that way and uh yeah, they ended up hauling us across the river and then dragging us to the top of this mountain the next day. And um, and then we, we managed to find the tree. We'd actually come... So we were a bit worried about finding that tree because everyone had said it's got a dirt track that leads up to it. 
So we came from the other end of that dirt track down to the tree and then we got to the dirt track people were talking about. We were like, this is like plain sailing. It's so easy. And, uh, yeah, so that was just, you know, a totally unexpected adventure at the start of that trip that just totally gelled us as a team. And um, and just that sense of just like passing the limits of possibility and just the challenges that you don't know whether you're going to be able to pass or not just sums it up. And uh at the time, it was it was pretty terrifying, but I think deep down we all knew we were on a pretty epic adventure, and that sort of just kept us happy, really. As ever, when you drop a hire car off, they do the inspection. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Oh god. Yeah, we drove it into the. Um, I won't mention the name of the hire car company, but I remember pulling into the car park with like all the bumpers tied on and mud guards hanging off, and um, at which point we saw all the staff members stand up line up at the window <laughs> their mouths open and this guy came out with his notebook and was just like what happened <laughs> we kind of had like a bit of a team brief beforehand and we decided Zach was going to deliver the cover story because he was the best at lying me and Ian don't stand a chance and uh, so we had this cover story that we'd got stuck in a ditch <laughs> for a couple of days and then some guy tried it was a it was a pretty shoddy cover story and he kind of bought it and then he's like, okay, cool, we're just going to have to take you to the um, police station to, to give a proper report. We're like, cool, okay, yeah, no worries. Um, and I mean, this car was totally ruined. <laughs> and he's like, we'll go, in, we'll go in your car. So we get in, he's sitting in the passenger seat, me and Ian are in the back, like, oh no. <laughs> and Zach starts it up, like chunks of metal and bits of car stuff had been falling out of the bottom of this thing for a few days now. So... And he started it up and it sounded like a tractor and everything's rattling in it. There's like sand and water in the bottom of it and mud everywhere. It was like, oh God. <laughs> so we drove to the police station, which was incredibly intimidating. So the, the emblem for the police out there is two shotguns in an X shape. So, it's, so we kind of walk underneath a big gold crest with these two shotguns on it into the police station. Met by like the chief of police, this burly, sort of massive intimidating guy with thick eyebrows. And he's like, right, yeah, come and, come and have a seat. Sort of sits Zach down opposite this desk. And then he sits down opposite and it's pretty serious. And he's like, right, I need your uh, driving license and your passport. Zach was like, yep, so he gets his driving license out and his passport and gives it to him. As he hands it over, the guy grabs his wrists and he goes, I got you now! <laughs> As a joke. <laughs> but Zach, oh my God, I've never seen him so scared in my life. He like dropped onto his knees off the chair, <laughs> tears in his eyes. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> Letting all these whimpering guys, the guy was like, I'm joking. <laughs> and then Zach was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, then we, we delivered this cover story and then uh, got the letter and then had to pay kind of a small fine. And uh, and that, that was that. So we kind of escaped incredibly lightly, I think, on the scale of things. Um, but yeah, and then two days later, we found ourselves with excessively heavy bags in the middle of some canyon, didn't know where we were going. And that, you know, that was the next adventure <laughs> two days afterwards, which was sort of equally epic. Um, but yeah, no, I think those adventures where it doesn't, don't go right, are, are kind of the best in a lot of ways. You kind of aim for that epic, don't you? In some ways, you just kind of strive it, strive to, to have an epic. Yeah. And obviously you do a lot of this stuff for fun, mm. but it's also work. Yeah. And what are the sort of jobs that you end up doing? Really varied. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I think primary and secondary objectives are a good way to to kind of class these things. And I think no matter what, if you're into doing adventures and, and going and exploring and exploring yourself in other places, I think your primary primary objective objective is always just that to to have an adventure, to explore the world, expand your perspectives and through first-hand experience you know so I think that is the primary objective and 
the secondary objectives can be anything from getting to the top of a mountain to doing a scientific research project or working with film crews and and that kind of sums up what I do mostly really I do a lot of work with um, film crews so natural history unit BBC independent film companies um, cold house you know yourselves work with you guys a lot um, so a lot of what I do is uh, sort of safety at height supervision um, but you you kind of you're kind of a bit of a plate spinner when you're on these jobs sometimes you're operating cameras sometimes you're holding a boom or you're running you're carrying stuff from one place to the other so you have to kind of be clued up with the jargon of filming and cameras and all of that kind of stuff um, and that's really varied you know sometimes you're filming people sometimes you're filming wildlife um, each trip can be very very different um, and then there's a lot of sort of research conservation expeditions um, which are probably my favorite to be honest because you get to work alongside scientists that are usually incredibly enthusiastic and knowledgeable about what they're studying um, and you get to really go into detail in what they're doing and you help them collect samples and note down the data and you get to have chats in the evening about how the research is going what they're finding out and sometimes you find new species and it's you know, really really exciting stuff um, and at the end of it you don't have to write any dissertation or anything like that you just <laughs> go home and the job's done you know so it's really it is a privilege to be able to work alongside scientists doing work like that um, and just get a glimpse of, of the kind of a different perspective of the forest really through their eyes um, and then a lot of what I do is just for the sake of adventure um, so just expeditions uh, for example getting to the top of a mountain um, or climbing a particular tree or looking for a particular tree so a, a lot of expeditions sort of just revolve around that really um, which is the kind of truest form of exploration in a way because you, you're not worried about any of those secondary objectives you're just there to have an adventure which is great um and then i mean i've done a lot of trips where i just pack my tree climbing harness and a rope like i pack my toothbrush you know <laughs> end up going on little missions and sleeping in trees when I'm, when I'm out so yeah a wide variety of, of projects but i think that's a good thing yeah and then of course there's i do a lot of work in the uk which is um i work as a rope access technician often doing geotechnical stuff so that anything from a lot of cliff stabilization so drilling anchors and securing mesh on cliff faces and also removing like dangerous and unstable trees from cliff faces um, which is great it ties in a lot of sort of technical rigging um, and chainsaw use and all of that kind of stuff and, and ropes um, but you can class it as sort of everyday work in the UK which is great and tree surgery is just there's nothing better. I wish I was doing more of it at the moment, to be honest. It's a really, really interesting thing to get into. And just to learn more about trees is, I mean, I think I'm quite lucky in the fact that my passion ultimately is, you know, my secondary objective is usually trees and climbing trees. And I just find trees so interesting. They're just riveting. And I think that interest in, in trees as, as structures and as organisms has been another kind of fueling aspect to why I do these expeditions. So what do we have in the UK? Tree-wise? Yeah. Oh, we've, we've got it going on, big time. There's some of the best trees in the world are in the UK, in my opinion. And uh, and trees around the world, you know, they're, they're very similar in a lot of respects. Um, I mean, the new forest is absolutely phenomenal. Um, you've got a lot of these neotropical species of trees which have been planted there. Um, so like the uh, Douglas firs and there's some redwoods and, and trees, a lot of the conifers that just stick out way higher than our than our sort of native canopy of oaks and beaches um and that's great because you can climb these trees and you just get above everything else um and it's it's just a really nice way to view the forest um and then there's western arboretum 
you know, Harcourt Arboretum, Stourhead. Like we've got some incredible gardens and parks that have like some of the finest collection of, of trees in the world, um, in in my humble opinion. Um, and granted, a lot of the tropical species don't grow to their grandeur in this country, but I mean, beech trees, the queen of the trees, Fraxinus excelsior. No, sorry, um, Fagus sylvatica is the Latin name for beech tree. <laughs> I mean, that's ash. Um, I haven't been doing enough tree surgery recently. But yeah, beech trees, in my opinion, are some of the most majestic, beautiful trees in the world. Really smooth barked, really beautifully shaped, and just, yeah, they're just crying out to be climbed, really. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it's quite apparent that you love trees and love woodland. But you must look at the state of not just British woodland, but woodland internationally and mm. worry a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um and I mean, just starting with British woodland, like we've, I think back in the Victorian era, we got this kind of idea in our heads that the landscape needs to be manicured and, and looked after, you know, and dead trees need to be taken down and removed, for example, or dead wood on the ground needs to be taken away. And, and it's a very sort of just neat way of looking at everything. And I think that's not benefited our landscape by any means. I mean, they back in the day, there was a, there's been accounts of they used to import dead trees into Kew Gardens to give the landscape like a, a sense of like longevity, you know. And, and before the Victorian era, it was people liked looking upon dead trees. It gave that sense of age, and 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 it's really refreshing now when you do walk around a park or a garden and you find a dead tree that's just been left to do its thing. You know, it's such an important part of life, especially in trees, is the death, is the return of all that nutrients down to the ground, and just that that sense of time. It really it. it adds to the appreciation that people hold for trees i think if they see more dead trees and and get an idea of the fact that they're not around forever and they are living organisms and they do die um but i think also just the way in which we we look at trees and treat them um i mean something people often overlook is how trees are connected underground um, which is one of the most riveting things in the world um they're known as common mycelium mycelium networks um and it's basically the the way trees can communicate essentially they're way more kind of socially responsive organisms more like us than we ever imagined really they've so the roots of trees um in order to get the um, the nutrients they need uh they work in symbiosis with a, a fungi mycorrhizae um and these mycorrhizae the hyphae which are these tiny tiny little hairs are like a, a hundredth of a millimeter or something in diameter um you, you can't see them with the naked eye um but they can basically mine rock and soil for nitrates and phosphates and give the tree nutrients it needs that it wouldn't be able to get with its roots alone um, and in return the tree gives these fungi um, carbohydrates to sort of sustain them um, so these mycorrhizae basically link onto the roots of the trees um, and they're connected to all the other trees as well so even a, a bluebell you know 95 percent of all vascular plants i think are, like work in um in common in collaboration in uh, what's the word Symbiosis. symbiosis that's the one working symbiosis with um with mycorrhizae um and they actually so that connectivity they can communicate essentially so if one tree is getting for example attacked by insects there'll be a chemical signal that's transport transmitted under the ground through these mycorrhizae networks um, and through the root systems of trees which will stimulate a response in other trees um, and it's actually been known to for, for trees to to produce a certain enzyme in their tissue that attracts 
a predator of the particular insect that's assailing the other tree, which is insane. So trees can actually attract a predator to get rid of the the, the insect that's attacking this neighbouring trees, which I just find absolutely mind-boggling. Um, but also in, in cases of drought or changes in climate, like trees can be, it's like an early warning signal, basically. Um, and it was believed that these common mycelium networks connected entire like continents, that all these trees were connected. Um, and trees really struggle when you take that away because suddenly they're just isolated. They're used to having this network around them and this kind of like feedback system and this communication network. And if, for example, when you see an oak tree in the middle of a field and all the ground around it has been ploughed, it's got no connectivity. And often those trees, you'll see them, they're just not in a good state. They're dying, they've got dieback. And it's just because they've got no buffering. They've got no help. <laughs> they're just on their own in the middle of a field. And, and I think we need to be more aware of that in Britain as much as anywhere else that trees need that connectivity and you need those those wild untouched spaces just for nature to do its thing and to to get that network back online as it were and do you think we're at risk of losing more or do you think it's on the yeah I think we are at a massive risk of losing more um but I also think it's very easy to get disheartened by the state of the world and the state of deforestation um as I said before it's the same story the world over like pretty much anywhere you go there's huge tracts of land being deforested and it seems almost unstoppable but i think it's important to remember that humans do have a very good track record of of solving problems um and and making things right and i think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better but i think we're at a really interesting point with humanity where people are starting to recognize the importance of, of wild landscapes and trees and and they're starting to appreciate it a bit more and gradually there is a shift I, I, I seem to be seeing in in society where there is a bit more of attention being put towards trees and forests and protecting what we've got left um, and I think that is key really I think protecting what we've got left of our oceans and our trees is absolutely pivotal um, and I think we've got about so one thing I mentioned this to you earlier actually the World Health Organization estimates that the population is going to level off at about 11.5 billion um, which was news to me I in my back of my head I just thought exponential growth for, for population you know and it was just a really dark picture painted because it's like well it's just going to get overpopulated and there's not going to be room for anything and eventually we're just going to you know eat ourselves to extinction but that's not the case so populations level off um, and we've got about 30 to 50 years before we reach that estimated figure where population is going to level off so by that time if we can have our ducks in a row and be able to live on this planet sustainably then that paints an incredibly bright future for the rest of us the rest of the world um so i think yeah there's definitely a positive light to look at it um but again we can't lose that drive and lose that focus on on keeping areas protected and changing people's hearts and minds and making people appreciate trees otherwise we won't have five and six year old children building cargo nets in the tops of trees well, will exactly we? yeah so what have you got coming up um so in a couple of weeks i'm I can't tell you where or what for, but I'm going down a volcano, um, an insanely scary, bubbling, lively looking volcano uh, with a crew of six people for a filming expedition. Um, obviously, <laughs> volcanoes aren't my uh, expertise, <laughs> but hopefully I'll be of use when it comes to the rope work. So yeah, that'll be fun. Um, then in... Uh, got another a film trip coming up in Spain um, and then I'm going to Guyana uh, where I'm taking some eight eight clients 
jumping out of helicopters and running around in rainforests and uh, sleeping on the top of tapuis, which are these big sort of rock towers in the middle of the rainforest. Um, and that's purely just for adventure. Um, so private clients and, and we're just doing a bit of guiding essentially. Um, so taking them down waterfalls and doing sort of James Bond stuff with them for, for a few weeks, which is, is going to be great. It's a brilliant, brilliant excuse. I'm very privileged to be able to do jobs like that. Um, but yeah, just to be able to spend time in a rainforest with no sort of other job really other than to look after these guys, which I'm sure will, will be enough of a job to be honest. But um, yeah, so that's on the horizon. And then, um, yeah, I've got a multitude of other little ideas in the back of my mind that are always ticking away. Well, what are the dream expeditions that you're willing to talk about? Dream expeditions. So uh, I would love to go to Papua New Guinea and climb trees with the pygmy tree climbers out there. When I was out there a few years ago, I met some tree climbers that were, um, they were just that. They were local pygmy guys living in the rainforest. And uh, after a short conversation with them, I discovered that they actually climb trees for fun, not just to collect food or fruit or to build the houses. They literally have the best tree climber in the village and they all go out and they climb trees together. And that was the first time I'd met a group of people that do that outside of Dorset. And uh, at that point, I remember I said to them, I was like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring some friends and we're all going to climb trees together and it's going to be awesome. And uh, so I think that's definitely on the cards for the future. Um, where do I start? There's so many trips I want to do. Um, there's a few rocks and cliff faces I'd actually like to explore as well. I haven't got a bit more into to, to, to rock climbing recently. Um, and that is, I mean, it's it is an adventure and it always astounds me how much of an adventure it is it's just so committing being on a rock face because it's so i mean in a tree it's kind of quite friendly and there's it's really interesting there's loads to look at it's, you can have a really good nice time up there on a rock face it's often really unpleasant really uncomfortable <laughs> really scary and just super committing you can't reach the ground in a single rope length or two rope lengths you, you know it's kind of a, a you're out there so there's a few trips that I'd like to do um, and at the moment they're quite sort of hypothetical romanticised ideas in my head but hopefully they'll come together so I'd like to climb a big a big cliff face in the jungle I think that'd be good um, and I would like to do some more stuff in snowy environments um, Baffin Island is a place I'd really like to go and explore where essentially you've just got these huge granite cliffs that rise straight out of the sea ice um, so I think that'd be a great a great place to go and run around whether people are rock climbers or whether they're walkers or whether they, you know, do go walking the dog in the forest or, you know, maybe people don't get outside of that much. What would be your advice for people who wanted to start climbing trees or were intrigued by the idea of climbing a tree? I think go out and do it. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't have any ropes or the right footwear, there's plenty of trees you can get up into without ropes relatively safely. I'd just say go and do it. You can have a surprising amount of fun in like a 20 foot tree, just swinging around in the branches and work. Just moving around in the tree is great fun. And you soon discover that your body's basically made for it, isn't it? I mean, we've evolved from life in the treetops to life on the ground. So we were made for climbing trees. We're great at it. So I think no matter what age, shape, size you are, I think it's just a great thing to go out and have a whirl at. And it, yeah, for, I think for a lot of people, it brings back those kind of childhood memories. Um, but for me, it's just sheer joy, really. Um, and I think if you wanted to take it further, it's surprisingly simple. The rope system needed to climb a tree, you just need a harness and a bit of rope and a couple of pressic loops and you can pretty much get anywhere. So I think, yeah, go and do it. And I'd say for the rock climbers out there, I'd say go and use the lead climbing system on trees. It's a great fun. You sort of, you set off with a dynamic rope, you use slings and carabiners or you just pass the rope over branches as you climb. 
and you can lead climb trees and there's some cracking roots like really 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 good roots up in trees and it's just an, a really pleasant three-dimensional place to be um and beyond that i think there's actually something deep down in every one of us that feels quite safe and secure and happy in the top of trees maybe just from what we've evolved from so uh my advice would be go out and do it amazing mm. thanks very much you're welcome pleasure For more info on Waldo, check out the show notes on theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Terra Incognita is produced by Coldhouse in association with Sidetrack magazine. I said it in the first episode, but for me, Sidetracked is the coffee table adventure magazine. I've read every issue cover to cover, and I'd suggest you do the same. You can grab a copy at sidetrack.com. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Cargriffin. Despite it being early stages in the podcast, we're really interested in knowing who you'd like us to speak to. If you have any ideas, please email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.